all, this is where Texas politics gets interesting. Here again are two guys named Jason, some great guests, and cold Texas beer for another smart conversation on Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. All right, welcome back to Yolitics here. Uh, thanks for listening if you have downloaded this episode. Thanks for watching if you're watching us on YouTube, if you found us there. Wheeler is really missing out. This is two weeks in a row he has missed out on this. And in fact, he's so upset about missing out on this episode, he fired off this email to the bosses. And uh, I, I can't wait to see what their response is. I'll probably have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him. But here's why he's upset. We were invited back to the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Apparently, our last podcast was uh, good enough to, to have us back over here. So we are with uh, David Kramer, the executive director of the George W. Bush Institute. Yep. Thanks for being here, David. Jason, thanks very much, and glad you're back. W tell us what the difference between the center and the institute is. I think of the library. This is a massive place. What, what do you do? Library, museum, and the institute, that's the whole center. So the center is made up of all parts of that. Uh, and Ken Hirsch is the president and CEO of the whole center. Uh, my job is to run the institute, and we're a think tank, do tank, which means that we produce expert analysis, but we also do things to try to help people, try to push policy solutions forward on a whole range of issues from uh, immigration, education, veterans and military families, and economic opportunity. Then we have a pillar of work we call Advancing Free Societies that focuses on freedom and democracy, global health. This is the 20th anniversary, by the way, of PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which mm. has saved over 25 million lives, and it's up for reauthorization this year before Congress. Women's advancement is a part of this. And then third pillar of work is strengthening our democracy, where we have our leadership programs, presidential leadership scholars that we do with the Clinton and LBJ and George Bush, George H.W. Bush 41, um, and then our veterans leadership program. And then we have a pillar of work that uh, talks about the statement that we issued last month as well. And we're talking about the statement. We're talking about strengthening the American democracy. Let me give our, our uh, listeners, you, you do a lot of stuff here. And you have to keep your hands in a lot of different uh, fields. So let me give our, our listeners a, a little background on you. You spent 24 years as Senior Director for Human Rights uh, and Democracy with the McCain Institute for International Leadership. 24 years in D.C., and in that was my last job in Washington. In I left yep. Washington yep. out of that. Yep. Uh, I also served eight years in the uh, State Department uh, during the George W. Bush administration, including Assistant Secretary of State for uh, Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Uh, you wrote a book called uh, Back to Containment, Dealing with Putin's Regime and you uh, chair the board of the Free Russia Foundation and serves on the board and serve on the board of the International Republican Institute. You stay busy, man. <laughs> Can't well, hold on to a job, it sounds like. Well, <laughs> wouldn't you do anything else? Do you do anything else or is this it? Man? I think a lot of people ask that question. Do they? Uh, <laughs> So I, I moved to Dallas in March of last year, right. uh, 2022. Um, Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm still adjusting. I'm, I'm from the Boston area. Uh, say, say the name of this podcast. Say Yolitics. Let me just hear it in the I'm Boston not area. even going to give that a shot. Yolitics? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> we put ours where they don't belong, and I don't want to do all that right, to your, right, your right. title. Um, but um, I lived in Miami f almost five years teaching at Florida International University right. before coming here. Uh, people here are incredibly nice, and uh, working here is just an honor and a privilege. 
Uh, as you mentioned, I, I served in President Bush's State Department for all eight years, and it's great to be back here. We, the work here is rooted in four principles. Uh, it's freedom, accountability, opportunity, and compassion. And that guided President Bush when he was in office. It continues to guide us here at the Institute, and it's great to be with an amazing team here. We're not huge. We're about 45 people in the Institute. We produce an online journal called The Catalyst as well. So we do an awful lot, um, and we try to have impact, uh, yeah. and, and that's what we've been doing. Well, let's talk about some of the impact. You guys did something, and it started here. Um, this statement you mentioned a moment ago in the, in the podcast here, what's unusual about this statement is it has 13 presidential centers and foundations that all got on board with this and said, hey, this is a good idea. Um, the, the joint statement regards the future of our nation as an urgent call to action for all Americans. We, we will have a link to it uh, on this episode where you can find this. It's six paragraphs. It's simple. No names are in it. It's, it's high level. It's, yep. it's from, the, uh, from the top here. But the message is clear. And I want to read one paragraph. I think it's the second to last paragraph in here. This is a statement that all 13 centers signed off on. It says, each of us has a role to play and responsibilities to uphold. Our elected officials must lead by example and govern effectively in ways that deliver for the American people. This, in turn, will help to restore trust in public service. The rest of us must engage in civil dialogue, respect democratic institutions and rights, uphold safe, secure, and accessible elections, and contribute to local, state, and national improvement. Yeah, the, the centers have never united uh, on a statement like this, and it was the first time. We went out to the centers in June and asked if they would be interested in lending their name to this. We, we took the lead here at the Bush Institute, and the response we got was very enthusiastic. Uh, there were a few uh, minor edits, I'd say, in the scheme of things to the, to the draft, and we incorporated all of those changes. There was just a sense, and we're talking about uh, presidential centers going back to Herbert Hoover to uh, Barack Obama, uh, and, and obviously uh, President Bush is, is in the mix there. And Republican-Democrat, yeah. this is not a partisan statement. It's not a Republican statement, Democratic statement. It is a statement reaffirming support for democratic principles and institutions. And that, that paragraph that you just quoted there, Jason, I think is very important because it means we all have a role to play in this. We have a role to uh, disagree and debate with our fellow citizens, but to do so in a respectful manner, to recognize actually that debate and disagreement make our democracy stronger. They challenge us to think through our positions so that we're not just a bunch of yes people. Um, and we all have a role to play. You, you could participate in a neighborhood organization to improve a, a local park, run for city council, join the military, join the U.S. government, uh, run for office, whatever it may be, there's a role people can play. And so it isn't quite enough, frankly, for people to uh, bemoan what's happening and, and get frustrated and, and develop a sense of apathy. If you're not happy with the current situation, then get involved and try to change it. If you are happy, then try to continue it. And that's up to the individual to, to make that choice. Well, David, the current situation is red hot. I yeah. mean, we've, we've been red hot since, I'd say, in the last decade or so. Um, it, it, let me ask you this. The, the whole thing is about preserving democracy. That's what these six paragraphs are about. How fragile do you think the U.S. democracy is right now? We are the oldest democracy in the world. Um, we have gone through some terrible times in our history. We had a civil war that cost over a half a million American lives. 
the late 1960s were a very trying time in this country. You had very high-profile political assassinations. You had protests over the Vietnam War. The civil rights movement was really taking root at that time. Uh, not long after that, we went through uh, a near impeachment of, of, a, of a president and the resignation for the first time of a president. We've had challenging times in our history. We're going through some challenging times today uh, where our politics are very polarized, um, where compromise and bipartisanship seem to have become dirty words to a lot of politicians. And I think what we see is that there is a majority of the population out there that is kind of frustrated with the state of affairs and rather fed up, but that is eager to see some positive change. And so what we want to do is to make sure that we reach out to those people to let them know that we and the other centers recognize the state that we're in and that uh, we want to try to open up some, some space for people. And I think the response we got to the statement was very positive. There are a few criticisms out there, and we welcome that. If people are still talking about our statement, like you and I are doing right now, about a month after it was issued, then I think we struck a chord. And it seems to me that there is a hunger out there for people to hear some civil discourse and, and dialogue. We want to promote civility. It seems to be in short supply these days. Right. And we want to both uh, model it ourselves here in the Institute and within the Presidential Center and try to highlight and amplify it when others uh, showcase it as well. Sorry for the phone there. I, my phone's on vibrate. I don't know why. That was Jason's phone, I, just for the record. That's embarrassing. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> never happened before. What the heck's going on? Uh, the idea for the statement started here. You got everyone else on board, but the idea started here. I'm yeah. curious, David, was, was, there, was there one event, was there one thing that, that happened where you're like, we got to get out there. We can't just be thinking, you know, high level here. We got to get out there and we got to say something and we need to do it with everyone else. There wasn't a tipping point. Um, we actually had the idea for a statement last year. And but there was no tipping point? What, what, there, what there sparked wasn't the idea? It, it, it was just a sense that um, there, there are extremes on both sides that seem to be drowning out the, the middle, the majority, and we wanted to try to give voice to, to that majority, to uh, underscore the importance of civility, to remind people we actually do know how to conduct an election. Um, we held an election event in May of last year here at the, at the Bush Center, and we featured some election officials from Maricopa County, from Michigan and elsewhere. These are our fellow citizens, and they're our family members, or our friends, our neighbors, and they're coming under tremendous threat and, and attack from people just for doing their job. And so part of what we wanted to do was to remind people, and we did this with uh, an organization called More Perfect, we wanted to remind people um, these are our fellow citizens, they are critical to the functioning of our democracy, and they're human beings just like we are, and they shouldn't be subject to uh, attack like they have been. And so I think the attacks on our elections, if we were to look at one thing, maybe has been something. But the, the statement is, is about more than an election. It's about more than an individual. It's about more than a campaign. It is to remind ourselves that we started out as an imperfect democracy, with slavery written into the Constitution, women denied uh, the right to vote, but we have tried to make progress over the years. Are we perfect? No, but we're constantly striving toward a more perfect union, and we felt that um, uh, this year was a good time to remind our fellow Americans of that. We, we, we tried to take a, a positive look to the future, 
while not being Pollyannish about it, and to remind ourselves that when our house is in disarray, that plays to the advantage of our adversaries overseas in particular, who, um, in cases particularly, say, of Russia, try to exacerbate the divisions and, and fissures that we sometimes experience here in this country. We shouldn't agree on everything, but we should be able to unite on the big things. And, and a number of politicians have said, when we are united, we are a stronger, more effective, more powerful nation. And for most of our history, we've been a force for real good around the world. And um, so I, I think the statement was important, and it was a long time in coming. We also just felt that our presidential centers have a unique voice. And, and to be able to have Democratic and Republican administrations or presidential centers to attach their name to it, I think, lent additional weight to this cause. Let me read one more line on here, too, that really struck me. One line says, views can exist peaceably side by side when rooted in the principles of democracy. Debate and disagreement are central features in a healthy democracy. Civility and respect in political discourse, whether in an election year or otherwise, are essential. You mentioned the reaction to this. Uh, tell me about the reaction to it. You said most of it was positive. Yeah. Where was the criticism from? I mean, th this is this is basic stuff you learn it, it in a is. civics class. It is. No, no question about it. I, I would say the vast majority of, of responses we received were, were very positive. We, we got um, responses from people in our leadership programs who were applauding us for taking this position, um, from people we have not had contact in dealing with before, saying that we kind of open up some space for them and for others to weigh in on these issues. I don't want to overstate the impact of this statement, but I do think it was important for us to take this position. The criticism, there, there was a columnist, a prominent columnist uh, in the Washington Post who felt that we were too even-handed, if you will, and, and didn't failed in naming names. Um, I think that misunderstands the role of presidential centers. That's not the kind of position we would take. Um, and there was some other criticism that comes along. It's the nature of the beast. I, in some respects, the fact that we got some, uh, that columnist appeared about two, three weeks after the statement appeared. So as I said, people are still talking about it. And I'd rather have it spark a debate, even if it brings some criticism, because it got people's attention and hopefully got them thinking. That's a good point. I mean, you know, I, I always bring up the, the uh, Harmony Karzai after the invasion of Afghanistan. And he, he had a statement at the time. This is what, 2001, uh, 2000, uh, I think it was 2001 is when the mm -hmm. invasion happened. Yep. And, and he, his statement was something like, you know, uh, people know us now, and that's all that matters. It's yep. not for the best thing in the world. Right. It's for a terrible thing, but people know us now, and if we're on the radar, then, then we can hopefully turn this into something good. We, we, we wanted this statement to spark conversation. And if, if people want to quibble with it, if they want to disagree with it, that's part of a conversation. And there may be people who write into that columnist or to other people who don't like the statement and say, I actually did like the statement. Well, why it, didn't you name names, though, David? Let me ask you that. Be, because this is bigger than, than any individual. This is, this is about restoring trust in our democratic institutions and our democratic principles. And naming names would wind up alienating. Uh, it isn't what we wanted to do. This is about uh, our future, where we're going, and uh, to remind our fellow Americans of how far we have come in our history, the challenges we face now, but also what a bright future we can have if we stick to our, our democratic principles. Do you think the message, do you, th do you think the statement got through to anybody? I do. The, the, uh, let me uh, let me rephrase that. Yeah. Do you think the statement got through to people who need to hear it? 
Um, I hope so. Um, I think it also, as I said, I think it gave people, it opened up space for people who have been kind of wringing their hands, worrying about where we are, where we're going. And if we were able to open up space for people who otherwise have either been frustrated and kind of thrown their hands up in the air or who um, just don't know what to do, then we will have contributed to, I think, the, the broader cause here. Um, I, I think it was very important that we came out with the statement that it got the attention it did. It, it got more attention than we anticipated. Um, and that we get people to reflect on it and what it means. And uh, so, so I, I think what we did was a, a positive thing. We then have to figure out what do we do from here? And, and so one of the goals we have is to continue to work with the other presidential centers on how we as a group can try to advance this cause. And uh, we'll also uh, figure out how to work with others. We're, we're uh, one of the things that we're doing here at the Bush Institute, and we may have some partners in the very near future on this, is uh, launching some listening tours where we're going to go out to communities starting here in, in Texas, uh, here in Dallas in particular, actually just with SMU students recently, um, to ask them what they think about when they hear the concept of democracy. Then what do they think about, about the state of U.S. democracy? What do they think about the role of the media? What do they think about the U.S. role in trying to advance democracy in other parts of the world? And we're not going to go on these listening tours wagging our finger telling people what they should think. We actually want to draw them out and hear what they have to say. And small groups, and part of it is both to help inform our understanding of what the thinking is in various communities around, uh, around us, but also to try to model and encourage civil discourse. Um, we're anticipating that there is likely to be some strong disagreement among participants in these listening tours, but as long as people listen to each other, uh, let the other side speak, be respectful, then I think we're actually making a, a contribution, even if a small one. Well, let's talk about the roots of it, because that's interesting. And something happened to, to, to lead, you know, to, to land us where we are and, and to have you guys issue the statement. I was in Germany last month for a fellowship, and, and people are very interested, as you know, uh, in the United States and the political happenings here, and, and it dictates so much of what happens in other parts of the world. But they were talking about how they think there is a large majority of Americans who are tired of democracy. And that led to another conversation about, well, what is the status quo not doing right now? What do, what do you think the roots of this are? How, how did we get here, I guess, is the question. I think, I, I don't know that I would agree with the premise that there's a large majority of Americans who are disillusioned with democracy, fed up with it. I think there are people who are tired of our politics, tired of what appears to be a dysfunctional system um, where Congress struggles to pass budgets, even though that's one of its main jobs to do. Um, and so one of the things I think that is important, and it will be part of our work uh, going into, uh, into the uh, next months and years, is to try to stress the importance that democracy can deliver. You, you can have a democratic system of government, but if it doesn't help people, if it doesn't improve their lives, recognizing that the state has a limited role to play, that individuals also have a very important role in shaping their lives and their futures, um, then people will grow disillusioned with democracy. Winston Churchill famously said, democracy is the worst system 
And then he paused, and then he said, except for all the others. And, and so democracy is, is not perfect. There's no linear path to a, a, a democratic future. There are going to be ups and downs uh, as, as a country moves along. New countries that are transitioning to democracy. Ukraine is a perfect example of this, of a country uh, after gaining its independence at the end of 1991, suffered from terrible corruption, uh, but actually had two democratic pro-Western revolutions, one in 2004 and one in 2014. And it's one of the reasons why we support Ukraine uh, amid uh, the terrible Russian invasion of Ukraine, full-scale one that started last year. It, we, we shouldn't just sit by idly and watch a, an authoritarian government forcibly take land from a democratic state, particularly in the heart of Europe, Europe, the continent where two world wars started last century. And so they don't get along in Europe very, very well sometimes, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, it, it catastrophic costs. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But um, the, the advance of democracy will mean more peace, more stability, more security. We will have more reliable trade partners. If you look at uh, the globe, the, the threats and challenges we face come from non-democratic countries or organizations or groups, for example, like Hamas yeah. with the terrible attack on, on Israel on Saturday. And uh, we, we have differences with fellow democracies but we don't go to war with fellow democracies. The democratic peace theory means that fellow democracies don't go to war with each other. And so uh, it is in our interest both to make sure we advance democracy here at home, but it also is in our interest, we would argue very strongly here at the Bush Institute, to try to help other democracies and human rights movements and others uh, elsewhere around the world. Let's talk about the B word and the C word you brought up a moment ago, bipartisanship and yep. compromise. Yeah. You wrote an op-ed recently in the Dallas Morning News, and it said that it said what we all know: there are a lot of a, a lot of folks out there who see bipartisanship and compromise as weakness. Yeah. How should lawmakers and how should leaders, political leaders, change the messaging around that? Well, I, I cited a few reasons for it. One is gerrymandering. So gerrymandering is when state legislatures carve out districts that play basically to one democratic, uh, one political party or another. And so it means that whoever wins the primary is going to win the general election, and that person needs to play to the base uh, of that party. And when you only have to play to your base and not worry in the general election, then you're likely to take a more uh, extreme position. Um, so gerrymandering creates these safe districts they're really hard to do. Gerrymandering has been going on for about 200 years. Yeah. It's not a new phenomenon. But it reduces the interest of candidates to uh, go to the middle or to, to seek compromise with people on the other side of the aisle. Fundraising is another problem uh, because it means that, that candidates become increasingly divorced from their constituents and more reliant on the big money people. It also means they spend less time with their constituents because they're chasing after dollars. Chasing the checks. Yeah. Exactly. So, so what should happen? How, how do you get around gerrymandering and, uh, and, and you know, telling a politician, hey, spend time with your constituents rather than big dollar donors? Well, part of it is there are a number of court challenges underway in the state of Alabama and other places um, that contest efforts to reshape uh, electoral districts in these states. And I think to the extent that we can see 
the formation of these electoral districts in a way that doesn't tilt the playing field one way or the other, that would help in, in addressing the problem of gerrymandering. Fundraising, uh, elections are really expensive. And so um, campaign finance reform uh, was overruled by the Supreme Court. Um, people are suggesting public financing of some way, but then people are going to yell and scream that we can't afford to do that. Right. We already are running uh, huge deficits. Um, that's a big challenge as well. Um, but th there's also one other element, if I can, and, and that is, um, and it's not this podcast, but it is some of the cable networks and others. Uh, and social media plays a role in this, too. You, you, you get attention by yelling and demonizing the other side. And so if you want hits, if you want to become a well-known figure, and, and these things are kind of mutually reinforcing. If you're in a gerrymandered district, you're more likely to say some outrageous things on cable news or, or on social media. Um, and because so, you're protected. Because, exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. So the, the problem with all of this is, particularly if you have narrow margins, as we do in the current U.S. Senate, where there's a difference of two, or the House, where there's a difference of five seats, there are times where you have to reach across the aisle to get things done. I mentioned uh, PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS right. Relief. George Bush, President Bush, uh, launched this in 2003 with huge bipartisan support. And that was really important because at some point, George Bush wasn't going to be president anymore. You, you did wind up having a Democrat elected as president and President Obama. Um, but the fact that it had bipartisan support has been able to sustain PEPFAR over the 20 years of its existence. Um, you, you get support for Ukraine, for example, another issue that's really important to have Republicans and Democrats on both sides of, of the aisle standing with Ukraine. Um, you, you get uh, uh, infrastructure bills. Usually those are pretty popular because uh, members of the House and Senate like to send money to their districts or their state. Um, and so it is important to try to find areas where Republicans and Democrats can agree with each other, not on everything. It's important that they actually disagree and that they do represent philosophical differences. But when it comes to uh, functioning as a, as a system of government, it is important that they try to find some common ground. And that entails compromise. But as you said, compromise has become a dirty word. It, it's a sign of weakness in some circles, that if you compromise and you work with the people on the other side of the aisle, then you're just not strong enough. And, and you're, say, a, a rhino or a Republican in name yeah. only or the Democratic equivalent. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned cable news and, and I, I'd say AM radio and, and you know, social media as well. What role do you think that plays in, in, in souring the souring folks on the American democracy? Pretty significant one. I think I, so, too. I hate to say. No, I do, I do too. Um, I, I mentioned in the piece you referred to in the Dallas Morning News, it was uh, Jim Colby, who was a, a friend of mine, um, a Republican from Arizona, um, who was the chair of the House Foreign Operations Subcommittee. And um, Jim was the one who identified years, this is 12 years ago, uh, in a think tank talk, identified those three areas, gerrymandering, fundraising, and cable. It, at that point, it was still mostly cable news. Social media has become a, a, a bigger factor as well since then. And it's how people get the hits. Uh, it's, it's how they get the attention. And uh, if you want to get booked often on these, on these cable programs, then they want to get you on because you're going to make some headlines. 
And um, but what, what, what can we do? About I, that? I was afraid you were going to ask yeah, that question. I know you didn't want to be cornered like that yeah. question. Yeah. But but what what can you do about gerrymandering? I mean, maybe the courts will will intercede there. Uh, fundraising. I mean, money talks. Yep, it and does. The First Amendment protects. Yep. You know. Whatever social you, whatever media you go and on cable and say, news. For sure. So, uh, I mean, where, where, where do we go from there? It, it's the ballot box. It, it, at the end of the day, it, do you want to cast your ballot for somebody who is going to defend gerrymandering, uh, the massive uh, fundraising that they do, and, um, they, you know, goes on the cable shows or social media and says outrageous things? You have a say in this. You, you meaning all of us, we all have a say in this. Do we want to keep voting for people who go out and say and do these outrageous things? Maybe you do. Maybe you think that is a sign of strength that that representative is going out there and standing for uh, his or her constituents, in which case cast your ballot for that person. But if you find that that contributes to a souring of our political discourse and doesn't advance the causes of bipartisanship and compromise that are important in terms of getting things done, then you Hopefully you have other choices and, and you can make a change. You're an expert on Russia and Ukraine. You talked about the fledgling democracy uh, in Ukraine. There is a growing number of people in the U.S. Congress who, who want to suspend aid to Ukraine. I explain what would happen if the U.S. stopped helping Ukraine fight off Russia. It would not mean that Ukraine would stop fighting Russia because Ukraine is fighting for its independence for its freedom, for the lives of Ukrainian citizens. It would put Ukraine at a terrible disadvantage. And, and, and it would be a betrayal of our commitment to not just Ukraine and Ukrainians who have shown tremendous courage and resilience in fending off invading Russian forces. It would be a betrayal to the cause of democracy. Could, could Ukraine last? You know, could, could they sustain this war if, if, uh, if, if the West backed off? It would be difficult. I think they could, but the casualties would be much, much greater. They've already been horrible, but it would be much higher uh, if we backed off and didn't provide the support. Um, let me, let, let's be really clear here, Jason. They are not asking for our soldiers to fight on the ground for them. They are asking for our military assistance, which they do desperately need to try to even the, uh, the battlefield with a Russian army that is vastly greater than they are, that has, uh, has a lot more weapons than they do. Remember, the Russians are getting a lot of support from Iran. A lot of the drones that the Russians use are Iranian-made. There are reports now that North Korea is sending a bunch of uh, uh, trains full of, of equipment and ammunition. The Russians are getting outside support. The sanctions we have imposed on Russia have made that more difficult. But you are getting the Russians together with the Iranians and the North Koreans to try to sustain the Russian campaign. The Ukrainians are relying on the rest of Europe, uh, on the United States, on Canada and others. Um, and it seems to me we have an obligation to support and defend them. They, they were invaded the first time in 2014. Crimea. When Russia moved right. into Crimea, illegal annexation, exactly. The Ukrainians decided not to fight then. Um, they weren't prepared and equipped to deal with a Russian offensive there. But then when Putin got a little dizzy with success and went into the Donbass region of Donetsk and Luhansk, that's where the Ukrainians put up a fight. From 2014 until the full-scale invasion of February 22, 
um, over 14,000 Ukrainians were killed in that fighting. So it wasn't just a little uh, territorial dispute or simmering conflict. It, this was a real war. But then since the full-scale invasion uh, by Russia starting February 24th, 2022, um, we have seen uh, the scale of, 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 of fighting go up exponentially. And so um, it, 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 I think the uh, U.S. was right to provide the assistance we did. We were right to impose the sanctions that we have. And I, I wish, though, and President Biden said, at least until this weekend's events in Israel, that he was going to give a major speech to the American people to explain why it's in U.S. national interest to help Ukraine. I, I think that speech is long overdue. And I think if he were to give it, again, things have changed over the weekend, um, I think you'd get Senator McConnell to go out there, and I think you'd get uh, Chairman McCall to go out there and others and say, I disagree with Joe Biden on pretty much everything except when it comes to Ukraine, and that U.S. assistance will continue until Ukraine wins. I don't particularly like the phrase that President Biden uses, as long as it takes. I don't know what the it refers to in that phrase. Uh, Ukrainian victory, to me, is in our interest. And let me define what I mean by victory, because it's consistent with President Zelensky's definition, driving every Russian occupying and invading force from Ukrainian territory. And that includes Crimea by the way. And I think if we do provide the assistance Ukraine needs, that victory is achievable. Let me bring it back home here for yeah. us. What happens if the United States cannot get its own house back in order? We remain in disarray. Next year is a huge election year, yep. as we all know. And I'm sure this, this statement that was issued was probably timed for that as well. I, you know, it came off the top of your heads there. Um, if we can't get our own house back in order, what does that mean for the rest of Europe? What does that mean for, for Asia, for China, for, for the security of Japan, for Taiwan? Um, and, and explain, if the U.S. abandons its leadership role, I don't think people really get that that vacuum will be, you know, taken up by somebody else. Yeah, and that won't be a good uh, right. uh, person who picks up that vacuum. Um, you mentioned your experience in Germany when you were there. Um, Europe is worried about our ability to sustain our leadership role, our ability to sustain our assistance to countries like Ukraine. Um, I'll tell you one of the biggest supporters of assistance to Ukraine, that's people in Taiwan. The Taiwanese recognize <clears throat> that if we help Ukraine and if we uh, help Ukraine drive Russian forces out of Ukraine, the Chinese leadership will have to think twice before launching any possible attack against Taiwan. How we help Ukraine has global implications, um, and it will, it will have implications for the safety and security of Taiwan. Um, it has implications for uh, global food security. Remember, Russia has tried to block Ukrainian exports coming right. out of the Black Sea of food. It will have implications for the global energy environment. It will be a, a very bad day if we pull back, if we fall into the isolationist tendencies that exist in both parties, by the way. And um, we have a leadership role to play. And as you were suggesting with your question, if we don't play that role, there will be others that will fill that, that void. And that is not something we want to see. We've got to remember, there are millions and millions of people around the world who sacrifice their, their lives in some cases to try to get their families into the United States. You don't see them doing that to get into Iran, to get into Russia, to get into China, North Korea, any of these places. 
we are the land of opportunity. We're the land of freedom. We um, are a land of immigrants, for that matter. And having a responsible uh, immigration system, a sensible immigration system is important as well. There are a lot of things where we are that shining city on the hill. We just have to make sure that we dole, don't dull that, that shine too much, that we continue to be that magnet. For all of our problems and travails and difficulties, there are activists around the world who continue to look to the United States for political, moral, financial support so that they can try to uh, create a better uh, and safer and freer environment in their own countries. To me, that underscores how important it is to get our house in order. And if we don't, if we fall into these terribly divisive situations, again, debate and disagreement are a really healthy part of a democracy. But when we become so polarized and questioning of, of clear facts, we play into the hands of the Russians, into the hands of the Chinese, we play into the hands of our enemies. That said, how concerned are you about the outcome of the 2024 election? Oh, it's a year away. Um, you know, there's a long way to don't go. Don't dodge lot, it, David. A, don't dodge a, it, a lot of How things. concerned are you? Uh, I don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. So, um, look, I, I, I think we, we have shown that we know how to conduct elections. Um, there is a responsibility on all candidates to reinforce their confidence in our ability to conduct elections. Um, and so um, it's, it's going to be a, a, a test. Uh, there's no question. We, we went through a terrible test and challenge on January 6th. But at the end of that day and into the morning of January 7th, our democratic institutions held. Uh, the vice president did his job. And, and so uh, that's something President Bush talks about a lot, that January 6th was both a dark day but also a very important day for our democratic institutions because they held. They were tested for sure. But they did hold, and, and I do think that our institutions are strong. Um, it would be good, though, if we stopped testing them as much as we have. Uh, Thirteen presidential uh, centers and foundations came up with a statement. What do you expect is going to happen? Is there more to come next year? More statements, more action? We'll, we'll see. I, I, I think so. We're, we're going to try to convene everyone here in, in December um, and do some brainstorming, see what else we can do. Um, maybe get some of the other centers to launch these kind of listening tours that I mentioned that we're going right. to do. Um, I think it's important for our centers to uh, get out there, talk beyond just the sort of elite, if you will, um, and, and to make sure we reach the wider community. Um, a lot of people just feel disconnected from the process. And what we want to do is to, to listen to them, to hear what they have to say. And uh, so we welcome that kind of engagement. I think the other centers, uh, some of them will welcome that as well. Um, we want to try to identify what positive, constructive roles we can play um, and recognize our impact is not uh, endless. Um, our resources are not endless, but where we can make a difference, that's what we want to try to do. And you have a unique voice. We, we do. do. We do. Yeah. And, and I think... It varies between and among the centers. For those of us who have living former presidents uh, still active and involved, um, and but even for those that, that don't, um, we do have a unique voice. And uh, um, each of our, our uh, leaders in these organizations have played unique roles in their own right. And uh, so I think reminding them of, of where we where we have been, where we're going. We have an exhibit here in our museum, for example, called Freedom Matters, 
that walks through the evolution of democracy also walks through our own evolution as a democratic country. And uh, it, it describes um, the slavery built into the Constitution, the denial of women's right to vote. Uh, talks about the internment of Japanese Americans during at the uh, outbreak of World War II. Um, it doesn't pull any punches, but it also shows how we have taken steps to correct our shortcomings and our and our problems. Um, it's got some great artifacts in the museum. I think a 1305 copy of the Magna Carta. Uh, a later copy of the Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, um, uh, and, and, and so we've, we've benefited from the generosity of some great donors for sure. those. It's a great exhibit for people here in Dallas and even beyond. It would be a great exhibit to come see in addition to the permanent exhibit we have here at the museum. That's at the George W. Bush Presidential Museum. It, it in is Dallas. indeed, yes. yes. Gotcha. And you are the executive director of the George W. Bush Institute. Yes, sir. You, you, uh, you took over what in January? Uh, so I came, I started remotely in January of 22. Right. And moved here in March job, 20, uh, the top job almost a year ago, exactly. Did you have to interview with former president? Um, I didn't. Uh, so my predecessor, Holly Kuzmich, right. had been here for a number of years. Holly did a fantastic, there, there are two kinds of people you want to succeed. Yeah. Uh, one is somebody who's really screwed up because you're bound <laughs> to look pretty good <laughs> right, by comparison. Right. Uh, and then there's Holly. Uh, and Holly, uh, people like Holly who do a great job, leave a terrific foundation and then you don't want to screw up because you'll look really bad by comparison um, so you gotta but I, work. I, I do have to work but I but Holly left this place in great shape and uh, so it's coming on a year that I've been in this current job and it'll be two years in January that I've been here working at the center and the Institute David thanks for your time really appreciate it man it's been a pleasure thanks Jason thanks so appreciate much being here Th thanks for listening as well thanks for watching if you found us on YouTube and we are back next week to take you uh, you know around the state and talk about uh, what is happening with politics here in Texas. Take care. Click subscribe and get Yolitics every week. Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas.